0: I
1: normally go, Sarah. I normally just sit on the edge there. Well done. I'm one of the to sit them. on the edge. <laughs> no. I'm fine in terms of seasickness, this should be okay.
0: How long is the crossing? It's, a, it's about
1: 14 minutes, I think, depending on conditions.
0: In the autumn of 2019, in the old days, two friends meet in Baltimore, in West Cork. They board a ferry which will soon depart for Cape Clear Island.
1: Oh look, that's a Portuguese man of war What? That's a Portuguese man-o'-war, the dangerous jellyfish. I'm glad I didn't bring my swimsuit. <laughs> How do you know what it is? They're They're looking things. They look like an inflated condom. <laughs> They're purple. A purple inflated condom. But then they have like the streamers.
0: They plan to do some bird watching. They have books and binoculars. They've a vague ambition to see rare birds, if there are any on the island. They're not great bird watchers. Instead, they'll roam about the lake and along the roads, and they'll ask themselves why we often have the urge to make and do useless things. Why do we stare at birds, for example, or make art, or even make radio? Let's meander around Cape Clear Island. Let's wait in the hope of seeing a strange bird. Let's watch the skies and wonder at nothing. Are they gannets, Sarah? Regan Hutchins, radio producer. Me, bald head, red beard, gray, fluffy microphone, West Cork native, but resident all year in Dublin, larger than a gannet. I think they
1: are. Yeah, you don't even need binoculars, really, do you? Because oh. they can see the black tips at the end of the wings.
0: Sarah Baum, writer, artist, paint-flecked, ink-stained, green-peaked cap. West Cork resident, but occasionally spotted in the city, larger than a fulmer.
2: Well, you see a lot of gannets and golds, Shearwaters, Shags, And Around the 60s, the Birdwatch Ireland started here in Cape Fearne. And when you see all these fellas looking up in the
1: sky with spy glasses, we didn't know help us, what was going on with other But that's something in well over the years, like. Over the years, we had
2: of wardens, like what,
3: what bird's name was, Steve Wing. That was uh, Dave Bird. Go away. Yeah. A,
0: a warden yeah. called Dave Bird.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: In September 2018, I did a short course with Birdwatch Ireland, based in Cape Clear Bird Observatory. It was called From Seabirds to Songbirds. It was during this course that I learned for the first time about vagrants. A vagrant bird is one which is found far outside its usual breeding, wintering and migrating range. They can also be known as accidental birds and cause a great deal of excitement amongst birders. Have you had anything interesting in the last week or two? No,
3: unfortunately not. Do you live on Cape? Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of birds nearby on the mizzen, red-eyed vireos, three red-eyed oh, okay, vireos.
1: yeah. That's quite a small bird, isn't
3: it? Yeah. It's a kind of large warbler kind of thing.
1: And would that be a vagrant, like...?
3: You know? Yeah, they're vagrants. They get kind of uh, lost a bit.
1: They get lost, most usually, because they are blown off course by storms or because they're simply young and inexperienced. It may also be because of a fault inherent in their navigation systems or simply because they suffer from wanderlust. I was instantly, utterly charmed by the story of the vagrants, its tragedy and triumph. A lot.
0: Like the vagrant birds, the writer and the radio producer have landed onto Cape Clear Island. They've stepped out of their lives and they'll orient themselves towards a lake and a bog And there, they'll scan the ground and the sky for birds. You can see quite far into West Cork over there, that mountain range.
1: Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's eight miles away. And the sea, it's really hard to tell distance over open water, do you not find that? Yeah. I have no idea how far out something is when you're just looking at a horizon line.
0: For me, it's funny to be standing just here now and looking over at those hills over there where my parents go walking, and I go walking with them, and we stand there and look at Cape, you know, and it's now the, it's the opposite view from, from Cape. I'll tell you now, I can see one clearly. It's got a very heavy, darker colour going from its eyes down to its be- uh, beak.
1: Over the top of its head? Yeah. Yeah. That would be a little grebe. Right? And then it has a paler coloured neck and throat. Yeah. So. Can you really tell whether it's yeah, yeah, buff yeah, yeah. or not? Whether it's what? Buff brown kind of thing. What does that mean? A uh, sort of very light brown. Yeah. Do you see where I'm pointing here, just between the rocks? Oh, yeah, bingo. That's definitely a little grebe.
0: Little grebes, then, we think. I can hear
3: the birds.
1: These are the bogs, as they say, and you see that kind of long, wavy, whatever the hell it is, reeds. You get a lot of birds in that, um, and that's southern-facing tip, so if you're, getting, if you're a bird getting blown up, this is where you arrive first, and because it's just long, wavy grass... Just kind of good for birds to hide. It's kind of
0: like a jungle for birds, isn't it? I mean, it's all the tall reeds and stuff. If there was a tiny little thing in there, we'd never see it. Like so you came here uh, last year and you did a course. And is that when you got the idea about vagrant birds, or when you were introduced to them?
1: No, I would, well with the vagrants. Yes, I was already writing about birds at that stage. I, because I spent the year working towards an exhibition and working with my hands and during the course of that year I heard a, a podcast on bird migration and I became obsessed with this little bird called the northern wheatear, which makes this like magnificent journey
2: In times like these
1: In times like these In times like
0: Handiwork, book, non-fiction, written by Sarah Baum, published by Trump Press, bright, dog-eared, Irish native, but seen on bookshelves all over the world since March 2020, larger than a goldfinch.
1: There is an Alaskan songbird, the northern wheat ear. She weighs about as much as a small ball of wool, and every autumn, she flies about as far as 300,000 small balls of wool, unspooled in a westerly direction, disentangled across Siberia and Kazakhstan and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, finally coming to a definitive stop in East Africa. It takes her three months to get there and two and a half months to get back again. And so, the Northern Wheat devotes almost half of every year to these journeys, 30,000 kilometers of sky. What kind of caught my imagination about the Northern Wheat Ear was that it seemed like a stupid way to go. <laughs> um, but they just go that way because they've been doing it since the ice age, you know. There's no logical reason, really. They just follow, follow those paths. You know, they, they go the way they always went because why would they think, okay, well, maybe we'll try this way and because there's a chance that they'll perish, whereas if they just go the way that, that they know. So anyways, my central premise was, why do we feel compelled to do these illogical things? You know, What is it within us that forces us to do things that essentially hurt us or are useless or that have no meaning? And I came to that question because I was making small objects, a succession of small objects, making handicraft, I suppose, making artworks, because I just felt a really strong urge to work with my hands. Um, even though as a career moves go it's kind of stupid because I'm supposed to be a writer you know (laughs) and that was going quite well and then suddenly I just thought no I don't I just I just feel like doing that and put a stupid amount of time into it and then it was here during the course that I learned about the vagrant birds I always travel with my plastic folder. And inside there's just a sheet of Ada cloth and uh, a few of the threads that I happen to be working on at the time and a needle and a spare needle because I'm always dropping them and they're so hard to find. And a little pair of sewing scissors.
0: Why did you decide to make a cross stitch of every single vagrant bird that has ever landed on Cape Clear Island?
1: i was just charmed by that story and i decided i was going to make a piece as a homage to that <laughs> 120 pieces <laughs>
0: 120 pieces <laughs>
1: so there's, there's no point doing one or two you know this is a velvet scoter, which is a oh, waterfowl um it's a really boring one it's funny i try and take away boring ones when I'm on the road um, because it just means I have to pack less colours. So it's purely black except for a white patch on its eye and possibly also on its wing. I haven't reached the wing yet.
0: So cross stitching, like if you go to someone's house and in the front door they've got Home Sweet Home in a little frame, that's kind of the basic cross stitch, isn't it? Whereas yours is more abstract.
1: I mean, yeah, it's minimalist cross stitch, <laughs> abstract minimalist cross stitch. Um, I'm a big fan of Agnes Martin, actually. And, uh, yeah, it's not that far from kind of her grids or that kind of idea. But because migration is what the project is about in a way, it's about the vagrant birds whose migrations have gone wrong. And so to me, each stitch represents a flap. You know, the s- small songbirds in particular, you know, make countless small flaps in order to get to a destination. The larger birds soar, but they're all making these kind of wing beats. And that mark making has something in common, I think, with the marks you make when you're working with your hands. And, and I felt in stitching that was the best way to represent it, There's something bird-like in stitching. And in the materials that you're using when you're stitching, even though I've never really stitched before. (laughs) Vagrants, the birders get really excited about the vagrants because. They're rare, and that's what they all want to see, something that hasn't been seen before, that's unusual. But essentially, it's it's a horrible tragedy for for the small bird. You know, it's so remarkable that they've gotten all the way here. So in a way, it's a triumph, and it's also a small triumph for the birders. But for the bird itself, they will nearly always not be able to reorientate and get back to where they were flying to originally. Um, they're not going to be able to breed they're not gonna find a mate, there's not gonna be the same species there. They're tired, they're different, they're often more brightly colored and so they're more conspicuous to birds of prey. So it's nearly always a tragedy for the birds themselves. This is my very quiet monument (laughs) to all uh, all the birds, all the vagrants who perished. The birds who cross great oceans have no gauge for measuring distance travelled. They can only determine where they are based on the amount of time that has passed. Some of them, the birders say, are able to read the surface of the sea as if it was a map. A map of no obvious contours or symbols. A massive, restless, churning map. Its marks heavily congested, hieroglyphic.
0: this little library?
1: Oh, it's so cute. Basically, a library in a container.
0: I wonder do they have any um, Sarah bomb
1: <laughs> books in it? <laughs> I wouldn't mean, know. I'm not the kind of writer who goes into libraries and bookshops and checks for their own book. <laughs> And I always scurry past my own section, lest anyone catch me lingering alongside my own book.
0: <laughs> so does that mean that you generally don't hang outside BA? A B, no,
1: no, I haven't bought a single book by an author beginning in BA, like, or B at all in the last whatever. Pat
0: course. Barker, or...
1: No, Frank L. Baum, that's who I'm next to, the guy who wrote The Wizard of Oz. Huh. Um. So He's B-A-U-M.
0: So where are we going, Sarah?
1: Well, this is the Bird Observatory. It's, as far as I'm aware, the only manned bird observatory in Ireland. So the only one with a warden that's there full time, basically. So it's run by Birdwatch Ireland, and the building is owned by Birdwatch Ireland now.
0: It's a really pretty little house by the side of the harbour.
1: Yes, it is. It's right on the the harbour.
0: Steve Wing, bird warden, Keen-eyed, full-white beard, UK native, but now Cape Clear resident, larger
3: than a sea eagle. We do have a huge number of vagrant birds turn up here, especially from America. We're right on the extremities of Western Europe, and we're the the last bit of land, really, that, that any birds are lost coming from Siberia instead of heading, heading south they've headed, headed west and um, we're the last bit
1: what kind of captured my imagination was that you get so excited about something rare but it's kind of inherently tragic because the little birds themselves are probably not going to make it
3: i mean you're right i mean it's hugely exciting when you see something that you know has never been seen this side of the atlantic before anyway and you, I mean, you actually get a great buzz from that you know even more so if you find it yourself it's sad but because you know that bird is never going to find a mate of its own species, so that's a, if it survives, which is unlikely, it's going to lead a very lonely life. You go
4: on ahead, I'll just rest a while, cause I've been flying since dawn, my wings are tired,
0: so you go ahead.
3: last year we were a group of us were down in south harbour by the hostel looking at a swainson's thrush a bird from america which had only just been found that morning then mary cadigan uh, was driving her bus and about half a mile away from where we were looking and saw an odd little bird on the on the road in front of her and she stopped didn't recognize it so stopped and got out and took a photograph of it thinking initially it was a robin but then as soon as it moved, she thought, no, it's not, it's not a robin, I don't know what that is, it's different, it's new. And then she showed us the photographs later, and we, could, we were able to identify it as the veery, which is the first ever record for Ireland. Veery, North American woodland bird, a vagrant bird,
0: finally, in our programme about vagrant birds, plump, cinnamon brown, pale underparts, larger than a robin.
2: It had 367 likes, and 49 retweets. And look at it like a that's thing. the first picture of it in Ireland. And it first was, landing. Sir Playford. Yeah. No. For realizing that was a, a rare yeah. bird. It's just that I saw the white there, otherwise I would not He looks good there. <laughs> How did you get
0: such a good photograph?
2: I just came out to the bus for a second, but then there was somebody behind me, I had to hurry. So I just got the one picture. Normally birds move when there's traffic. Yeah. He didn't move, so I was looking. So it, was, it just came in after sea, I'd say. And mm-hmm. they're kind of
1: baffled then. They're kind of... Um, yeah,
2: they're tired and hungry. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: They have no energy. Yeah. And then there was bird watching around, so I showed it to them. And then they had to go and check it out first before they, they'd be breaking news on Cape.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is that the best? Do you have any other... Like, record spot. Well,
2: that's my best one, because I got it first. First. First, And the first for Ireland. That's what it was, Omega. (laughs) I was the only one that saw it on the Wednesday, but Thursday, then, he was... He started in classes, and then he came around here, so I had to keep the cat in. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he was around the garden all day, and he went down around there, and he went up to Jeff's. And and he went down, came back again, and over to Rose pier, and then he disappeared. So it
1: was just for a day.
2: Yeah. So I don't know whether a bird of prey got him or not. Oh, no. yeah. yeah. Sometimes I'd have a sparrowhawk hunting in the garden. I several times I see him hunting the rock doves, and he'd catch them. Oh God, Yeah.
4: That
2: be? <sighs> oh, he would. I'd sit in the kitchen table. I didn't have any dinner, and there watching him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: a small songbird, the northern wheat ear. She weighs about as much as a small songbird a pinch more than a robin and a few pinches less than a thrush she topples out of the ditch in front of me as I follow a narrow road jogging up a steep hill on the mile wide island in the early morning in the autumn she hops up again and finds a perch in the brambles twists her neck around and regards me weighs me up with her black gem eyes, holding herself unnervingly still and for so long that I am the one who turns away. And when I describe the incident later on in the day to the warden at the bird observatory, he tells me it was probably a juvenile who arrived in the night from Greenland, that most likely I was the first human she had ever seen. And this comes as a revelation that a bird might be as curious to look at me as I am to look at birds.
3: How long have you been the warden? 21 years. What does your job entail? First first and foremost, to keep a daily log, which is something that we've done here at the Bird Ops for 60 years now. So every day from middle of March through to the middle of November, we do, we record everything that we've seen during the day. Cuckoo shorted our
4: swift skylark,
3: rock dove. 40, um, I had forty-seven at one point on Mary's roof.
4: Yeah, I had forty-three, and then there was quite a lot over by the lake. There was about another fifteen or so over near the lake. And he
3: counts so the little grebes on the lake.
1: Yes, Then you counted, didn't you?
3: We were still
0: deciding whether they were mallards or whether
3: they were. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we had two mallards
3: as well. You know, it's it's an observatory. It's not my home, so it's places for the birders to stay. Yeah. But I look forward to them. Look forward to this It's October. Busy time of year, but it's good. Great crack.
0: So, have you eaten here before, Sarah?
1: No, I've never stayed here before. We were kind of in here a lot when I was doing the course, you know. So I kind of had tea and that.
0: Oh, you seem very much at home here. OK, folks. The whole thing of spaghetti in this, I hope that's enough for us, but I mean it's all we have anyway. Dermot Hughes, birdwatcher, sharp-eared, also bearded, Belfast resident but often seen in flocks of birders larger than an egret.
4: Well I, I always enjoyed birdwatching on my own anyway, but I always had a few friends who I would have gone out with every so often, but quite happy to bird on my own. And it's not really a family
3: family activity guys. because you have to concentrate on what you're doing, and you can't be really concentrating on what the kids are doing. Or. No,
4: no,
3: kids no, aren't going to. to sit still for sort of and No, you
1: still camp, you know, you, you, you can't. And how did you get into it, Steve? Was it always a...?
3: Uh... Mary, I was, uh...
1: was It was because of her, wasn't oh, it?
3: Obviously, yeah, very much so, yeah. Like
1: and before so. that, did you study something, or were you...?
3: The birding came quite later, actually, yeah, so it was more, this was more the early years were drinking and music. and then then I went to London. Somehow calmed into an interest. Then I went went to London and then I met Mary and Mary was interested in birds and I was very interested in Mary. I thought, well, no, (laughs) the only way this is going to work is if I get into the birds as well. And then the rest is history. The rest is history.
4: (laughs) So so, that's how how it happened. The rest is natural history. (laughs) Yes, indeed, Yeah. Um, so we're going up to the, to the, basically, it's like a little mini woodland area just to see what's in. If there had been a fall of migrants, you'd probably start to see the odd thing knocking around these bushes here just beside the harbour. You know, you always sort of keep an eye on the bushes just in case you see anything moving. But I haven't seen anything apart from the ubiquitous robins and dunnocks there. of there everywhere on the island. And, of course, the gulls. There. It's all about sitting still rather than sort of moving all the time but if the birds aren't calling you know you're not going to see them as easily. There's a gold crest there.
0: Today I'm going to have to change my batteries which is unfortunate but it's also probably where you're going to see the one bird of the day. And I'm going to be in the middle of changing batteries, so yeah. What if something happens while we're changing batteries? What if the birdwatcher turns his head away at the wrong moment? What if we land on Cape Clear with our writer and our heavy-duty recorder? And there are no vagrant birds on the island and only one bird watcher to count the crows. We'll take a leaf out of his notebook. We'll keep recording and we'll make something of it.
4: I mean, there's no point coming here looking for a specific bird because it doesn't deliver on that basis. It is always purely by chance that things turn up. So you can't really predict what you're going to see. I suppose an average day is... Whenever you walk around very despondently because you're not seeing anything rare. (laughs) You know, when you see really good stuff, they are probably more the exception than the rule. So it's really walking around in anticipation and expectation and hope a lot of the time. But, I mean, you know, we are relatively driven people. There's some metal pivots flying through. Oh, they're all wagtails seeing something new does perk you up and gives you you know a good lift, and it also uh, I suppose it reinforces your sense of optimism you know it's <laughs> it's not misguided after all you know you you get a lot of knocks as well because you, you you know you maybe go you hear about a rare bird and you go and look for it and it's not there or you don't see it or something like that. And so, you know, a lot of that sort of thing goes on as well. But really, it's always the the buzz of seeing something different, something new. Whenever there's quite a few bird watches around, obviously try and communicate amongst ourselves so that if somebody does see something, they can pass the word. And then everybody heads manically towards one direction, unless they're sidetracked in the process by something else
0: as he lifts his binoculars
4: to his eyes. To see nothing, see an imaginary bird.
2: Do you think
0: you could go off for two weeks and be on your own on an island and do bird watching every day? (laughs)
1: No. Oh. <laughs> Do you? The kind
0: of romantic part of me, or the the idea that I have for my own life, you know, I should be that person that does that, just tears off. and.
1: I couldn't sit for hours and hours with only the possibility of seeing something great. Do you think? You know, seeing the bird is all even if it's not anything that important. Um, they're constantly listening, constantly looking and then the possibility of seeing something can keep them in one spot even if it's damp, even if it's cold, even if they need a wee or whatever. Um. Could you sit for the second hour if in the first hour the have been would be fuck all?
0: I'm not sure if I could spend two weeks bird watching but I would certainly spend a day you can even do this in Phoenix Park in Dublin just lying in the grass listening to the sound of a skylark I would never get tired of the sound of a skylark
1: yeah I mean I'm essentially actually all for doing things for no particular reason but I find it hard all the time that doesn't come naturally to me I have to constantly explain to myself why I'm doing this I feel like I should better be doing other things that were Mm. contributing in some way to the forward thrust of my life (laughs) like what difference does it make if I see a bird I've seen the bird it's kind of not enough to just do something that's peaceful and that I enjoy or I'm all struck by or whatever, I feel like I had to go and make something or write something
0: do you know what would be really embarrassing it would be if we're sitting here And the listener on the radio hears like a really rare call of a bird. (laughs) And we're looking at mallards and black-backed
1: gulls. (laughs) I've always felt this insistence to be making something with my hands. And while I write, I can write until the cows come home, but it won't sort of satisfy the urge to be working with my hands. You know, for some people, they work in a garden. But for me, it's always been some kind of, of handicraft, and now more so. My dad was someone who could never sit easy. He always had to be doing something with his hands, and he could build anything. Like He was trained as nothing, but he he very much took you know, whatever materials were around him and (laughs) stuck them together and made some complex machine. Perhaps since he's died, I've returned to making stuff with my hands because I I kind of feel this is something that brings me closer to him. It's something that he and I had in common, even though the things that we made were so completely different. And we clashed a lot when I was a teenager. But as I got a bit older, we bonded over the crap that I was making because he could always make it slightly better. (laughs) And because we both felt the urge to build things.
0: You know, we've been spending all this time with the birdwatchers and they just seem to have this commitment, but also kind of like slightly borderline madness that they will spend their time going off to find a red pole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since I've discovered your project and you've told me about your project, I'm just wondering, like, is there something that you share with that category of human being?
1: Yeah, um what I'm interested in is this sort of insistence to do useless things, you know, why do we f- feel the need to be making things or doing things that don't help us or society in any way? And it was when I sort of stumbled upon that connection with bird migration and with specifically the birds that make journeys that kind of don't make any sense what is it inside them that that drives them to do this and I suppose it's the same perhaps with the people who go and look at them and it's the same with artists any artist I know any real artist I know is not making stuff because they want to be an artist but because they feel this strange urge to continue making useless stuff and that's what interests me what really fascinates me. And with the, well, to be honest, when I look at the birders, I feel like they're actually doing something really laudable and noble and useful because they're contributing to citizen science in a way that I'm not. The more of the prospect of the career I have as a writer, the more I feel compelled almost to sabotage it and do the thing that that nobody cares about, that that will go nowhere in a way. I, I mean, I find that interesting, but it's maybe it's as soon as you've sort of succeeded at something, it's no longer particularly interesting and you set yourself some other challenge, even if the challenge is simply to make 120, you know, stitching samplers.
0: I'd be happy to spend hours recording in a meadow, sitting on the grass and listening to the birds and the crickets, but I'd equally be just as happy not to record, but to spend hours doing it anyway. And you strike me as kind of the opposite in a way. You, she never stops doing things. That's my impression of you, Sarah.
1: Useless things though, useless (laughs) things.
0: (laughs) In the autumn of 2019, in the old days, two friends prepared to leave an island in West Cork. When they've gone, a vagrant bird might land there. A woman might find it on the road. A man might note it down in his book. 120 birds might be carefully cross-stitched, catalogued and boxed away. And recordings of the trip might return to the same air which carries the vagrant birds of Cape Clear.
1: There must always come, at some stage, the finishing point with its pure joy. This is the true sublime finishing, the wonder and awe, the catharsis and reassurance, the guilty bliss of a fresh small object placed into the world. Some entirely unique, inimitable thing that didn't exist just a couple of hours ago and which I have brought into existence myself alone and utterly.
0: Firecrest, not a vagrant, but a scarce migrant. Punky yellow and orange stripes on its head. A bird in the hand, an absolute joy to see. Smaller than every bird in Ireland. Yeah.
3: It's a firecrest, made in northern Northern Europe. Isn't it absolutely stunning? This will come from Finland. Sweden. Okay, on profit and
1: migration.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a sweetie. <sighs>
2: oh,
3: yeah. The little orangey feathers. This one's a female. Beautiful colour, that It's quite orangey, you know. I'm going to just weigh this one now, if it'll stay in a little cone for me. And it's 4.8 grams. So that tells you how small he is. Mm. No, 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 steady, steady, steady. Don't you go down there. And what will you do with it now? I've got to let it go. I have had many of those this year. This
1: is the first one. This the year. first one? First
3: OK. One oh, wow. He's yeah, got a little sort of bronzy, bronzy patch on his shoulder there. It's stunning. Oh,
1: he's
3: so lovely. A little stunner. The Vagrant Birds of Cape Clear was presented and produced by Regan Hutchins. With them on the island was Sarah Baum, whose book Handiwork is published by Tramp Press. You can contact the Lyric feature by email features.lyricfm at rte.ie.